Amen. Do you want the good news or the bad news? That's a question which I'm sure you have been on the receiving end of before. A frightening question, I should say. Perhaps your immediate thought when I ask that question is, well, I would like to get the bad news first. Get that out of the way. It's far better to get the bad news first, and then we'll move on to the good afterwards. If that is your feeling when I ask that question, well, you're in the majority. Studies show that 78% of people prefer to get the bad news first before the good when they're asked which kind they would like to hear first. Sometimes, though, we aren't always given the privilege of deciding which kind of news we would like to hear first. There are times when the news bearer decides for us which we're going to hear first. For example, Daddy, I had a great night's sleep last night, but I also wet the bed. Or maybe your wife might say to you at some point, oh, I made a new friend today while I was out and about. Oh, very good. Yes, I met her after I reversed into her car. These are the kinds of things. You get the bad news first, or the good news first, I should say, and then the bad. And it's the bad news that really takes the shine off the good news that came before it. And in a way, the passage which I've turned your attention to tonight, Luke chapter 2, it contains an example Of that kind. As we saw this morning, to give you the context again, Mary has brought her new baby boy, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be presented in the temple, as is demanded by the law of Moses. And while there, she and her husband Joseph encounter this man Simeon, who holds Jesus in his arms and then by the Holy Spirit delivers a wonderful discourse proclaiming the brilliance of Christ's person and the work that he would do. However, if you look carefully at what Simeon says, he does not ask Mary. Without asking Mary, which she would like to hear first, Simeon begins by delivering what you might think is good news. Between verses 29 and 32, words we read this morning, where he describes Jesus Christ and his gospel using terms like salvation, light, glory. Before this encounter with Simeon, Mary has at different points been given a little more insight into the wonder of her son through Gabriel, first of all, then Elizabeth, then Zacharias, and also via the heavenly host who brought their word to them via the shepherds in Bethlehem. And progressively, as all of that unfolds, Mary's beginning to grasp more and more the significance of the child which she has recently carried and then delivered. And after all of these things have been said to her about her son, I think you could understand what it would be like. Mary's turning it all over in her mind. Her head, you might think, is spinning, putting the pieces together. And I think that's somewhat the idea of verse 19. After all of those things have been said to Mary, in verse 19, it says, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, turning it all over in her mind. What does it it all mean? Well, with the latest good news from Simeon, it seems as though it's all falling into place a little more clearly. 
We see after Simeon delivers the first part of his words to her, in verse 33, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Her heart is lifted with this latest view, this clear view of Christ as she stands in the temple that day. But God, knowing fully the joy that is in Mary's heart at this moment in time, he uses Simeon to speak a little further, perhaps to temper the excitement that no doubt was filling Mary's heart. Having heard the good news, Mary then, from verse 34 onwards, is about to receive what to her ears will be interpreted as bad news. Let's read verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Not everything in the life of this Messiah is going to be joyful. Although Mary is blessed and she's highly favored, that is is not up for discussion tonight. Of course she is. What will take place in the life of her son will bring great sorrow to her. More than that, it will bring destruction to many in the land of Israel. As far as Mary is concerned, there is bad news to accompany the good. And in these words, directed to the mother of Jesus, we get a glimpse tonight of what we're going to consider the future of the infant Christ. The future of the infant Christ. It's a future which we can summarize in three ways. Simeon brings these latest comments to Mary by starting telling her what impact Christ will have on the people of Israel. He said in verse 34, This child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. This child, when he grows up, when he performs his work, he will clearly have a huge impact on the people around him. In these words, we see, first of all tonight, that Christ will divide. Christ will divide. Immediately, these words point out that because of Christ, all people will fall into one of two categories. There are those who will fall, and there are those who will rise. When we talk about those who will fall, The Greek word that is used there in Luke 2 to describe that fall is a very significant word. It's a word which is used in only one other place in the entire New Testament. That word is used in Matthew chapter 7 where Christ teaches that very um, well-known parable about the wise builder who built his house upon the rock and compared him with the foolish man who built his house on the sand. As you know, we read about how those houses that were built, they were battered by the wind and the rain before the house of the foolish man fell. Christ says, great was the fall of it. So this is not like, uh, as some of you may be very familiar with, when a child falls over on the ground and 
After a minute or two, maybe a tear or two, a little bit of crying, well, not long after that, they eventually get back up and they run on their way. It's just a temporary thing. No, this fall that is described through this particular word, this is a final destructive fall. This is complete ruin. And that is what Simeon has in view with this first category of person. Some people will fall and they will be ruined. Some others, they will rise. Let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us a little more perspective as he deals with pretty much the same theme. 1 Peter 2 and verse 6. First Peter 2 and verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So Peter is referring to Christ as a stone. And according to the prophecy in Isaiah 28, he is a cornerstone. That is the word used to describe him. To those who believe on him, they will not be confounded is what Peter says. That means they will not be ashamed. See the difference in verse 8. Where that same stone, which to those who believe is the cornerstone, which is a precious stone, it's then described to those who do not believe as a stone of stumbling. A stone which causes people to fall. Those who are disobedient will fall because of Christ. Those who do not believe will stumble to their ruin on the issue of Jesus Christ. It could be said, perhaps to give you another view of this, that Christ is like a magnet. To some, those who are his people, he's attractive. He's precious. He's everything. He is the reason for their rising and their eternal life. And yet the exact same person to others is repulsive. Others are repelled by Christ and they will reject him, his gospel, his people. Ultimately, they are rejecting the eternal life that he offers. This is a division of all people. It was Christ who said... I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother. This is the critical issue. What a person does with Christ will determine whether they fall or rise. It's on this issue that eternal destinies are settled. What you do with Christ will determine whether you fall into ruin or rise in glory. This is the issue. The only issue which will settle your eternal destiny. 
In the context of Mary's present situation in Luke 2, this was probably a shocking truth. Not everyone will find that salvation which Simeon described. Not everyone's going to find it through Christ. He's not going to be light to all men. To some, he will bring destruction. This is probably not a terribly popular thought for most people at Christmas time. Many are quite content to think about the incarnation, to sing about the hope which comes through the arrival of the Messiah as a baby in Bethlehem. But we ought to remember that Christ is much, much more than this delicate little child. That's how the world would always like to think of Christ. That way, he's inoffensive, he's mild, he's harmless, he's vulnerable even. But Christ declares himself to be much, much more than that. He is the great separator. He is the judge of all the earth. He is the one who brings about the destruction of the wicked. There's no neutral ground. As Christ said, he that is not with me is against me. Simeon tells us that Christ will divide. There are those who will believe on him and they will rise. There are those who will reject him and they will fall. But Simeon goes a little further. We go back to Luke chapter 2, towards the end of verse 34. He then shows that not only will Christ divide all people, but that the group who will fall by Christ will show their rejection of him by their outward actions. This child will be an object of hate. Verse 34 finishes with the words that he is set for a sign which shall be spoken against. Not only will they speak against Christ, but a further implication is then given in verse 35 when he says, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. Simeon says Mary is going to be pierced in her soul. Referring to a sorrow that will come to Mary. We know that the sorrow Simeon is speaking about points us to the day when Mary would endure, or sorry, watch her son endure, the mocking, the torture, the murder at the hands of his enemies. And so in these words we see that Christ will suffer. Christ will suffer. On the face of it, The picture grows darker the more Simeon says. The bad news gets worse. Not only will some men suffer a great fall through Christ, but he himself will suffer at their hands. And Mary will grieve for him. It seems very bleak. It seems very depressing all of a sudden. But I want you to notice something in verse 34. You look at it carefully again. It's that little word in the middle of the verse, that word set, that important little word set. Simeon says that this child is set to separate all men and also set to suffer their hate and their violence. I want to show you that this little word turns the entire scene from gloom into joy. Why? 
Well, that word set is usually translated as lieth. In one place, it's actually translated as appointed. That makes the idea, I think, a little bit clearer. A little like when you set the last rollo to one side. You've set it aside for a particular purpose. You're keeping it for something. The point is that Christ is deliberately placed. He's selected. He's set to do what Simeon is saying. That's important because it's not an accident. Christ is appointed to suffer. It's not an unfortunate accident which Simeon is telling Mary about. It's not a sad story which reminds us about how miserable and how sinful this world is. Christ's coming to earth and suffering is exactly what he was appointed to do. He was set for this. This is why he came. If you go with me now to Hebrews 2, which we read earlier, a passage which deals fully with that idea of Christ's appointment and his accomplishment. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ was made lower than the angels. He came to earth and took a human nature to himself, a human body. And why? What was the point of it? Well, Simeon, he hinted at it, but here in Hebrews it's absolutely clear. What did Christ come for? He came for the suffering of death. He is set, he is appointed, he is intended to suffer and die. Now, I told you that this thought will turn our gloom into joy. And so far, perhaps you're thinking, that hasn't quite materialized. This is still just as dark and depressing as we started out. Well, if you follow through into verse 10, we see why this turns our gloom to joy. Keep reading. He tasted death. It tells us he did it for every man. Much more than that, it was by the grace of God that he tasted death. Then verse 10 brings us all away. It is because he has tasted death for his people that they are made the sons of God and one day they will be brought unto glory. That is the joy in the midst of grief. Jesus Christ came to earth to die and by the grace of God, that death is how sinful men can become the children of God. That death is how sinful men can inherit eternal life. That is how those who believe in him will rise. Because he was set for this task. To taste death for every man. So really, this bad news, as we've been calling it, that Simeon delivers to Mary, it's not bad news at all. It turns out this is good news. This is the heart of Christmas. This is the heart of the gospel. 
This is why we celebrate the birth of Christ, because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How does he do it? By his death. Christ will suffer. Go back to Luke chapter 2. There's a last comment from Simeon to Mary, and it's, it's as follows in verse 35. Luke 2, verse 35. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He's talking about all people. Whichever category they fall into, whether it's those who believe on Christ and rise by him, or whether it's those who hate him and fall to their own ruin. Whichever of those two responses is given, Jesus will reveal the heart. Christ will reveal. Those who express their hate of Christ will eventually fall into destruction. They've shown their hand. That outward treatment of Christ, it tells you something about the inward. To illustrate the point, let me look with you at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, where Christ, in his dealing with the Pharisees, explains exactly what this all means, that he will reveal hearts. Matthew 12 and verse 34. These are the words of Christ. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. So as he speaks about these Pharisees who've opposed him during his earthly ministry, Christ sets out a very important truth. It's that men may speak evil things, but it's by those words that the condition of the heart is shown. The problem of speaking evil, it's not that a man's mouth is evil. Rather, it's that his heart is evil. That's what Christ is saying. That's the crux of the issue. Those who have a heart biased to evil and against Christ demonstrate their inward condition by their outward actions in opposition to him. And as long as the heart is evil, it will only and always bring forth evil things. The response to Christ shows the state of the heart. But you might be wondering, verse 35, it talks about a good heart. Who has a good heart? Who is able to bring forth good things? Is it just a matter of whether or not we happen to be fortunate enough To be born with a good heart rather than a bad heart. Is that all it comes down to? Well, no. Jeremiah 17 and 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God says that the heart of man and every man is wicked and deceitful. So is the point of all this to say that we are all going to have our hearts shown by Christ. And he's going to show every single one of our hearts as wicked. Who then can believe on Christ? Who then is going to fall into that category of person who's going to rise through his death? Well, Ezekiel 
36, 26 gives us the answer. The Lord says, a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you an heart of flesh. It's not that some men out there naturally have a good heart. And they're able to believe in Christ. It's not that some by their effort, by sheer power of will, are able to gradually improve the state of their heart over time. Neither of those things are true. It's true to say that every man needs a brand new heart. Every man needs a new heart. We can only be given that new heart by God. He says in Ezekiel that it is his work. He is going to do it. He must remove that heart of stone. He must sprinkle us with clean water and cleanse us from wickedness. And by the Holy Spirit give that new life. New desires, the ability to love Christ and to believe on him for salvation. That is why Christ said, ye must be born again. This is the only way to be adopted as a child of God. The only way to be brought to glory by Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit must give you a new heart to replace that wicked one with which every one of us is born. By your response to Christ, your heart will be revealed. It's either that natural, wicked one, or it's this new one, the gift of God, heart of flesh. Christ will reveal. I want to ask you tonight as we close, what kind of heart do you have? I know you can't see it. I know you can't ask somebody else to check your heart for you. But the state of your heart is revealed by a very simple test. How do you respond to Jesus Christ? Maybe you're not in open opposition to him tonight. Maybe you don't announce your hate for Christ publicly or actively go out of your way to harm his people or his church. I would say that the fact that you're here tonight listening to the word of God preached is proof of that point. But let me remind you, there are only two categories. Those who believe Christ, who love Christ, and will rise to glory through his death. And then those who reject him falling to their eternal ruin. There's no in-between. There's no neutral category in the middle. There's no third group tonight for those who understand all of those truths in their head and yet do not respond by faith in the heart. This is good news to those who believe, to those for whom Christ has tasted death. If you're not yet in that category of person, I urge you to come to him tonight by faith. He promises eternal life to whosoever believeth. What he promises, he cannot fail to deliver. So tonight may you come. And one day you will be assured that you will rise through his death. Let's close with prayer.
Father, we thankful tonight for the Holy Spirit. Thankful tonight for that one who can take the words of man and make them useful, make them effectual, make them something which brings conviction. Tonight I pray that by those words the hearts of men have been revealed. Some tonight are realizing their great need of Christ. Realizing that their ruin, their fall is a final, never-ending and unrecoverable collapse. Turn some away tonight from such a fall. Turn them away tonight from such ruin. Turn them instead to the cross of Christ. To the one who tasted death. Turn them to him for salvation. We leave it in your hands. Salvation is of the Lord. And so we pray, Lord, do the work. Give new hearts. Give the gift of faith and repentance. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.